Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 358 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16, Translunar Coast. April 17th, 1972. Apollo Control, Houston, uh, 23 hours, uh, three minutes ground elapsed time. Uh, we're still standing by uh, awaiting uh, Tony England's call up uh, to the crew of Apollo 16. We presently show Apollo 16 at uh, a distance of 97,906 nautical miles away from the Earth, a velocity now reading 5,322 feet per second. Standing by now, awaiting uh, uh, Capcom uh, Tony England's call uh, to the crew of Apollo 16. This is Apollo Control Houston at 23 hours, 4 minutes into the mission. Apollo 16, Houston. Apollo 16, Houston. Glad there, Houston. How you doing? Hey, you sound good. Good morning up there. How are you doing? Great. Good. All your systems look good. Good show. Everything looks fine up there from down here. Oh, yes. Sure beats work. (laughs) How are your comrades doing? I'd hum something for you to wake you up, but I got a tin ear. After stowing his sleeping bag, Charlie Duke got on the comm to give the post-sleep report to Mission Control. All food intake, fluid intake, all urine and bowel discharges, everything had to be recorded. Go ahead, Charlie. Okay, I'd like to give you our uh, post-sleep report here yesterday. Uh, the commander uh, ate his sandwich and his orange juice and was in his suit and all of his meals day one. And uh, his uh, ERD is 22028. And he had seven hours sleep. 
best ever in space flight. No medication. Three voids. 34, 20, 18. Fluid intake. Total 21 ounces. Over. Okay, we got that, Charlie. Okay, for Ken, he had uh, from VLC uh, everything but the pecans, and he ate his sandwich and his orange juice. His TRD is 15030. Uh, six hours uh, in an eight hour period, but it was awake every, once every hour. Okay. Excuse me. Okay. We're uh, switching uh, hominies at this time. That's Charlie D. Uh, Charlie Duke with the uh, post sleep report. In case you were wondering, PRD is the Personal Radiation Dosimeter Reading. It was a readout of the accumulated radiation dose each crewman had absorbed. Similarly to many previous astronauts, Duke had not slept well the first night. He was very thankful to have sleeping pills because without them, he wouldn't have gotten any sleep at all. Though he was physically tired, he could not shut off his mind from reviewing the events of the past day and thinking about the following days. He also had difficulty adjusting to floating around while sleeping, and he missed resting his head on a pillow. He kept thinking, where's my pillow? What's wrong with my head? In zero gravity, when one is asleep, your head does not go anywhere. It just sort of stays there. To feel some pressure on his head and to keep from floating around, Charlie had wedged himself between the couch support and a stowable container on the floor of the spacecraft. Somehow, during the night, he managed to float out of the wedged position but by then it didn't seem to matter and he was able to close his eyes and go back to sleep. Of course, there were some advantages to sleeping in zero gravity. On Earth, you have to turn over regularly to relieve the pressure points. And if you go to sleep sitting upright, your head nods and you wake up with a crick in your neck. In zero gravity, there are none of these problems. You simply stretch out your legs, close your eyes, 
fold your arms and go to sleep. The head doesn't nod. Limbs don't go to sleep. And you wake up feeling perfectly refreshed, according to Charlie. Early on the second day, John Young glanced out the left window and commented that the earth was now looking about the same size as the moon. But the earth was getting smaller while the moon was getting larger. It was a beautiful sight, and everyone was in awe. Even though they were traveling faster than 5,000 feet per second, or 3,600 miles per hour, there was no sensation of movement at all. Space flight was totally different from flying in an airplane. Of course, in an airplane, you hear wind noises and feel the vibration of the engine and the craft as it cuts through the air and clouds. But in space flight, you don't experience any of these feelings or hear any of those sounds. There's no spacecraft vibration as you move through space, and all that you hear are the noises of the environmental control system, fans with their gentle purr and the electrical system inverters humming away. After a while, the astronauts got used to those sounds in the spacecraft and were instantly alert if the sound changed because something was wrong if it did. John Young had the experience of traveling through cislunar space before, but the uniqueness was not lost on him the second time around. In his description of the experience, he, he referenced Mike Collins, his Gemini 10 crewmate, who described the lunar coast so well following his Apollo 11 flight. Collins said, quote, Unlike the roller coaster ride of the Earth orbit, we are entering a slow motion domain where time and distance seem to have more meaning than speed. To Young, the best awareness of cislunar travel came from seeing Earth getting smaller and smaller in his window until he could finally see the whole disk. A fragile little oasis in the blackness of space, he called it. For all the astronauts, that vision of their home planet getting farther and farther away made quite an impression. Each morning in space, the first couple of hours were set aside for housekeeping chores, such as going to the bathroom, cleaning up, and eating breakfast. The crew's bathroom, bedroom, workstations, and kitchen were all in an area that was about 12 feet in diameter. This meant that they didn't even have privacy, even when going to the bathroom. What made things worse on Apollo 16 was most of the time they had to collect their urine samples so the doctors could measure what minerals they were losing in spaceflight. This meant they had to use special collection bags, the same bags they used inside their spacesuits. They were very similar to hot water bottles. To urinate into these bags, they used a rubber condom. Connected to the end of the condom was a one-way check valve, which was plugged into the rubber bag. When they began to urinate, the force of the stream would open the valve and when they finished, the valve would close. 
they stored these bags in a special container. Since the doctors wanted to know how much fluid they were losing, they would time their voids and report them each morning during their post-sleep report that you just heard. As we have discussed many times before, it was an even bigger challenge to defecate. I won't go into all those details again, but basically they had to poop into a plastic bag. They also had to save the fecal material because the doctors were concerned about mineral loss such as potassium. They wanted to study all of their body waste to understand how rapidly, when, and how much the body was losing of these key minerals. It was discovered on Apollo 15 that the crew had lost a great deal of potassium. This, the doctors had surmised, was the reason for heart irregularities they had seen with Jim Irwin and Dave Scott. To prevent the Apollo 16 crew from having these heart irregularities, the flight surgeons decided to add potassium to their food. It turned out they didn't have any heart problems, but the potassium acted as a laxative and caused them to almost run out of fecal bags before they returned to Earth. After only a few days, the crew knew it was going to be touch and go whether they would have enough. It would have been a disaster to have run out of bags with a couple of days left to go. Ken Mattingly had an unrelated problem with the bathroom procedure. On the second day, when Ken was getting dressed after using the bag, he found everything except his wedding band. It had floated off into the spacecraft unseen by anyone. The crew searched everywhere, but just couldn't find it. Ken had been a bachelor for a long time and had just gotten married a couple years ago. He really wanted to find it, so they kept looking for it all the way to the moon, but without success. With all this bathroom talk, we might want to take a moment to discuss hygiene. Of course, there was no shower. The only way they could stay clean was to use a wet washcloth and soap. The rag bath was necessary because a lot of water floating around the cabin introduced the risk of an electrical short behind the instrument panel. They even had to swallow their toothpaste after brushing. Though it was edible, it was not pleasant. To take their bath, they had to disrobe, take the water gun, and squirt a little hot water on the rag to get it damp, and then they rubbed down as best they could. Of course, they couldn't get very clean that way, and since they didn't bathe every day, a lot of odors began to build up. During training, the crew had decided they wanted to shave every day because it felt better and they looked better. So they took on board a little wind-up shaver. It operated like an electric model, but worked by a wind-up spring mechanism. The whiskers were collected in a small chamber behind the blades. Unfortunately, 
Something happened to the cutting edge of the shaver, and instead of cutting whiskers off, it felt like it was pulling them out one by one. Ken and Charlie stopped shaving completely, but John reverted to the backup method, which was a simple safety razor with shaving cream. After these housekeeping chores came breakfast. Some months before the flight, their dietitian, Rita Rapp, asked the crew if they had any special requests. Of course, for Charlie, being a southern boy, grits were almost a necessity at breakfast time. Rita didn't have a recipe for grits, but she created one just for Charlie. It took her a few months, but she did successfully create some nice-tasting grits. Charlie ate them for breakfast on day two, and he said they were delicious. Up to that point in space exploration, Charlie was the only astronaut who ate grits in space. John and Ken had grits on their menu, but they would never eat them. After breakfast, Houston usually read up the headlines, local news, sporting events, and any other news of interest, and that concluded the typical morning activities. Another part of their daily routine was performing pre-planned exercises. The doctors realized that three or four days in space without any physical activity left their muscle tone very bad. Also, the cardiovascular system began to weaken. Based on the experience of prior flights, they implemented some prescribed exercise routines. The idea was to get their heartbeat up to around 130 to 140 beats per minute and maintain that for 15 or 20 minutes. Since you cannot jog in weightlessness or lift weights, the doctors had put on board an exercise device that exerted tension when a person pulled against it. It was called the Exergeny. These devices were very popular in the 60s and early 70s. Simple as it was, it actually provided them with a good workout. Ken was very rigorous in his routines. John and Charlie, not so much, because they knew when they got to the moon, they were going to get a lot of exercise during their lunar excursion in one-sixth gravity. As with all Apollo moon missions, the spacecraft was always turning. On the side away from the sun, it could get very cold, and on the side facing the sun, it could get very hot. This was, of course, detrimental to the spacecraft systems. So to keep the temperature balanced, the spacecraft would use rotisserie or barbecue mode. It worked the same way as when a chicken is grilled on a rotating spit spinning over and over so it barbecues evenly. As they rolled, the Earth would come into view in one window and then disappear. Houston 16. Go ahead, Charlie. Uh, Tony, you just went by my window and half Earth made a spectacular sight. I bet it is. I tell you, I'm green with envy. Well, I don't want to trade with you. <laughs>
You say the world looked pretty good when it went by. How far out are we there, Tony? 108,285.1. They were now more than 108,000 nautical miles from Earth and moving about 4,912 feet per second. The Earth's gravity was slowing them at this point, but they could not feel the deceleration in the spacecraft. As they looked out the window, space was just black. They weren't able to see any stars because there was so much reflection off the spacecraft. A similar experience occurs on a clear dark night in the city when you look up amidst the tall buildings and bright streetlights. Very few stars are visible, but they were able to see and identify some of the major stars with their telescope. Also during their trip, the astronauts were able to enjoy some unique entertainment. Charlie Duke took country music to the moon. He blasted off and busted out those songs by Buck and Merle. Porter, Jerry, Chet, and Dolly rode that rocket ship with Charlie. Folks from Bakersfield to Raleigh sang with every tune. When Charlie Duke took For their personal entertainment, the astronauts were allowed to take a portable tape recorder and two tapes each. Charlie loved country music, so he called his good friend Bill Bailey, who was a disc jockey for a popular country western station, KIKK, in Pasadena, Texas. He asked Bill to put together a couple of 60-minute cassettes to listen to some country music on their way to the moon. Bill had done this favor for Pete Conrad on Apollo 12 and Stu Rusa on Apollo 14. So, of course, he agreed to do it for Charlie. A few weeks before launch, the cassettes arrived and the music was transferred to the official NASA tapes. Charlie hadn't had a chance to listen to them before the flight, so he was looking forward to hearing them now. The first tape started off, quote, Colonel Duke, Captain Young, and Commander Mattingly, this is the biggest show of the Wagon Masters and Miss Dolly and me in our entire lives. The longest distance from home of any show we have ever played and the smallest crowd that we have ever played for. But, the most important audience in the world, and outer space. And this show is one of the highlights of my career, and the most significant of my career also. There's no way to put into words how the Wagon Masters, Speck, Dolly, and I really feel this second to be able to share in the smallest way with this historic mission, and to be able, through the sound of music, to be a part of it, and to all of you gentlemen aboard. So, I hope you enjoy the songs and each thing that we put down for you. Now, here is a beautiful little lady to sing one of her big hit songs that I know you will enjoy, titled Joshua, Miss Dolly Parton, end quote. Charlie loved it. Besides Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton, there were Buck Owens and his group, 
Merle Haggard, Jerry Reed, Chet Atkins, and Floyd Kramer. Before the flight, neither John nor Ken thought they would like country music. John brought his easy listening and Ken his classical, but during the flight, they played these country western tapes more than any other. They seemed to enjoy them as much as Charlie did. They especially appreciated how all the artists had recorded the music and messages personally for them. Another friend of Charlie's, entertainer Don Wrinkles, did a series of tapes for him which kept the crew in stitches, and they played them over and over again. But in general, the three-day flight to the moon was a busy time. The astronauts had many activities scheduled. Besides the time spent housekeeping, there was a full program of things to do. They had to copy daily flight plan updates from Houston and make mid-course corrections to their trajectory. Purge fuel cells, charge batteries, dump waste water, change carbon dioxide canisters, prepare food, and chlorinate drinking water. They had photographs to take of Earth and space, utilizing various wavelengths such as ultraviolet and infrared, plus a great many experiments to perform inside the spacecraft. But one of the major events of day two came at 7.33 p.m. Central Daylight Time, 30 hours and 39 minutes into the mission when they made a two-second burn to refine the course of Apollo 16 and test the command and service module engine, which would be needed to get the spacecraft in and out of lunar orbit. At the moment of their slight mid-course correction, they were some 120,000 miles from Earth, almost exactly halfway to the moon, and traveling at a velocity of more than 4,500 feet per second. Their speed was still decreasing and would continue to do so until they got within 40,000 miles of the moon, at which time the moon's gravity would become dominant and they would speed up again. This is Apollo Control at 30 hours, 29 minutes. We're now about 10 minutes away from the scheduled ignition time for the a mid-course correction maneuver to be performed with the spacecraft service propulsion system engine. A very short burn of uh, about two seconds duration. Uh, this maneuver will uh, change the point of closest approach to the moon from uh, its present value of about 117 nautical miles down to the desired altitude of 71 nautical miles, at which point uh, the lunar orbit insertion maneuver uh, would be performed, placing the spacecraft in the uh, nominal 58 by 170 nautical mile orbit about the moon. Uh, flight Director Pete Frank has uh, checked the status with all of his flight controllers, and uh, we appear to be in uh, good shape for the maneuver. Uh, the crew has uh, completed virtually all of the activities prior to the mid-course correction, and everything looks good at this point. This is Apollo Control. We're now about three minutes away from the ignition of this mid-course correction. Everything continues to look good. Uh, the spacecraft is in the proper attitude. The uh, SPS uh, tanks are pressurized. And we're now two minutes, 35 seconds from ignition. Coming up on 10 seconds to ignition. 
And our guidance officer reports the burn is complete. That was scheduled to be a two-second uh, burn with a uh, change in velocity of 12.6 feet per second. Yeah, the old burn's complete, Houston. It's a big boot. Ritter. Another highlight of the second day was the rehearsal of the separation of the lunar module from the command module. The real event was to occur on the fourth day of the mission in preparation for landing. The rehearsal was necessary because once in lunar orbit, they would have only limited time to put on their suits, take their equipment through into the lunar module, put the docking system back in place, close the hatches, and prepare for separation. Therefore, it was essential they have this routine down to a fine art. John and Charlie entered the lunar module for this exercise. As Charlie floated through the tunnel into the lunar module, it felt strange to him at first because they entered upside down in relation to the instrument panel. After doing a 180-degree turn, Charlie was in the proper position and then being in the lunar module seemed like putting on an old shoe. While in the docking hatch, they did discover that docking latch number 10 was malfunctioning. There was a gap of about .01 inches between the latch and the docking ring. Mission Control told them to leave the latch alone until after they were ready to undock the lunar module and head down to the lunar surface. While in the lunar module, they also saw a few washers and small screws floating by, but nothing worth worrying about. After checking all the rest of the systems and finding everything pretty much okay, they returned to the command module, completing their rehearsal. Now, let's move on to day three. One of the highlights was an experiment that had been done on previous missions, but Apollo 16 tweaked it just a little bit. The crew nicknamed it the Light Flash Experiment. Recall on Apollo 11, after their spacecraft had passed through the Van Allen radiation belts, Buzz Aldrin had reported to Houston that he saw flashes of light when he closed his eyes rather like a flashbulb going off or a shooting star going across the front of his eyes. The flashes had appeared at an intermittent rate. The other two Apollo 11 crew members had also seen these lights, and every flight crew to the moon since then had observed them as well. So Houston designed the light flash experiment to try to determine what they were. The theory was they were high-energy cosmic ray particles which were penetrating the spacecraft protective shield and then penetrating either the retina of the eye, the optic nerve of the eye itself, or part of the brain that interprets sight. The experiment consisted of a large box whose sides contained photographic plates that they placed over their heads. The box was called ALF-MED, which stood for Apollo Light Flash Medical Experiment Device. In the box, one of the photographic plates was in a fixed position in relation to the head, 
and the other plate was free to move slowly. It was kind of like wearing horse blinders. The idea was that the particles would leave a track on the photographic plate, which the scientists could then measure for quantity of energy and direction it was traveling. Hopefully, this would yield clues to what kind of particles they were. The first time Charlie put on the box and closed his eyes, all of a sudden, bang, there was a flash similar to the flashbulb going off inside his eyeball. Another one appeared as a shooting star moving from right to left. Surprisingly, he could see the direction from which these particles came from. Though they lasted only a fraction of a second, they were long enough in duration for the crew to be able to describe them to Houston. Mark, Mark, a, uh, one, first one was right eye, a straight going from uh, inboard to center to the upper right. Left one was a straight pencil shape, a pencil line, left eye from center to upper right. Charlie was really intrigued by this experiment. In fact, if he just closed his eyes at any time during the flight, within a minute or two, he would see one of those flashes. At one time, when he was wearing the Alphamed, he must have counted 30 to 40 within an hour. It was like a fireworks display on the inside of his eyeball. Once the astronauts returned to Earth, they looked at those photographic plates. The physicists confirmed that they were, in fact, high-energy cosmic ray particles. This was important to know because these and other forms of radiation could be a problem during long-duration spaceflight. Another scheduled event for Day 3 was to visit the lunar module again. To gain some more practice, they put on their spacesuits first. Now, in zero gravity, it's usually easy to don spacesuits. In fact, it was the only place Charlie had ever been where he could put his pants on two legs at a time. Holding his floating suit out in front of him, he simply stuck both legs in simultaneously. Next, he put his head through the neck ring then arms in and closed the front zipper, which he could easily reach. The second zipper, the one that actually closes the suit, began on his left hip, going around his back to his right hip. But for some reason, it now seemed impossible to work this zipper by himself. So, Charlie asked John for help. John pulled and pulled but could not get the zipper closed. What the heck is wrong, Charlie exclaimed. This suit just has to work. It worked two days ago, so why won't it zip? He was very concerned. If it didn't work, they were in serious trouble as far as the lunar landing went. Charlie needed this spacesuit to be able to walk on the moon. 
a multi-million dollar mission shouldn't fail because of a tiny zipper. John continued to struggle with the zipper, but it would not close. It was almost as though Charlie had grown three inches and was stretching the suit apart. Finally, John took a pair of pliers from the toolkit, clamped them onto the zipper, and braced his knee against Charlie's back. As Charlie held onto the side of the spacecraft, John gave a good yank and pulled the zipper shut. Of course, Houston didn't particularly like that procedure, but it worked. However, more importantly, would it work on the moon? During the change of shift briefing, uh, John Young and Charlie Duke entered the lunar module, Orion. Uh, they powered it up, uh, checked the communication system, completed their housekeeping activities aboard the LEM, and are in the process of returning to the command module. Uh, the total time from the time the uh, LEM was switched to its own power until they were back on the uh, command module providing power to the lunar module was about 21 minutes. And uh, again, as uh, on the two previous occasions when we've had a look at the lunar module systems, when the uh, data has been transmitted back to Earth, uh, all systems on that vehicle look good. Though he didn't share his true feelings with Houston, Charlie was still worried about his suit and asked Houston if he could make some adjustments on it. This is Apollo Control at 55 hours, 35 minutes. A short while ago, uh, Ken Mattingly reported that the tunnel had been closed out, uh, indicating that uh, Young and Duke had completed their uh, suit exercise. We're back in the command module. Uh, the tunnel hatch replaced uh, after all of the uh, probe and drogue assembly equipment had been reinstalled. And we heard uh, Charlie Duke report that uh, his suit, uh, when John Young attempted to zip it up across the back, appeared to feel tighter than he was used to uh, uh, feeling in that suit. Uh, Charlie said he didn't feel this would cause him any particular problems, but he was concerned that perhaps the, the length would be too short uh, when the suit was pressurized and suggested the possibility, or at least asked that uh, people here on the ground uh, look into the possibility of lengthening the suit a bit uh, using laces that are in the legs. Uh, this is a relatively minor adjustment, and we're uh, uh, reviewing that possibility and uh, we'll get back to Duke at some time later in the mission with, a, with an evaluation of that suggestion. In the end, it was decided Charlie shouldn't tamper with the suit. The moonwalkers would have to take their chances and hope that it would work better in the one-sixth gravity of the moon. Uh, Charlie Houston. Go ahead. Okay, on your uh, tight suit there, were you wondering if you could say a few words about uh, how it felt during launch day? Well, it was a little uh, little tight uh, launch day. Uh, we, you know, uh, fitted it pressurized, uh, Tony, and it felt okay then. Uh, launch day, I thought the uh, legs were a little tight, but not much. And once we get it zipped, Tony, it, it feels a little tight, but I, it pressurized, it's okay. It's just the zipping part that is worrying us. 
understand. Well, everybody's thinking about it, uh, and uh, we'll come back with an answer on it later. Right now, I think that the general feeling is that uh, most people just assume you not uh, tamper with it unless you feel very strong about it. Charlie hadn't realized it, but in zero gravity, astronauts' spines tend to stretch and the muscles relax. He had grown about a half an inch, and that was just enough to keep the zipper from closing easily. Finally, on day four, Apollo 16 arrived in the vicinity of the moon. Early in the day, just prior to lunar orbit insertion, the crew observed quite a sight. Almost a half moon in Earthshine. Young reported to Houston. Houston, I just uh, got my head unlocked and pointed it out of window number one. And we have a half moon in Earthshine. It is really pretty. Roger. You can see basins. You can see all the... You know, you can see all the prominent features and little sharp craters like, uh, I think I'm looking at Kepler that's out there in the middle of the Mars. It's just beautiful. And it's all Earthshine. Yeah, it's it, it just about, it's like uh, two-thirds of the window, and I got my head no more than six inches from it. And on the, on the uh, dark side, uh, you can see a big dark disk, and I think the reason I can see it is it's the solar corona that's illuminating uh, around the back side. And I can see a star within, uh, well, I'll bet you it's within a degree of the uh, moon's disk. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 358 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 16, Translunar Coast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released on March 4th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 183 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, had some afterthoughts on this episode. We had planned to celebrate our 8th anniversary on today's podcast, but Mrs. SRH had to go out of town. And I just didn't feel right celebrating without her. She's such a big part of the podcast. So we will postpone until next time. Now, regarding this episode, this was the episode for the long trip out to the moon. So normally there isn't as much action and adventure, unless of course you consider Apollo 13. But there were a few interesting things going on that I will comment on. I liked how John Young described cislunar space travel by quoting Mike Collins. Remember, Collins said, quote, Unlike the roller coaster ride of Earth orbit, 
We are entering a slow-motion domain where time and distance seem to have more meaning than speed, end quote. On the one hand, that was very poetic, and I can understand its meaning. I think he was saying that there was no sensation of speed on the spacecraft. But on the other hand, velocity, or speed, is calculated by dividing distance by time, as in miles per hour, or feet per second. But I still like the way he phrased it. I know I wind up talking about these daily chores the astronauts have to perform on every mission, but I try to make each one a little different. For for instance, on this episode, the connection with the loss of potassium causing heart problems on Apollo 15 and NASA deciding to add potassium to Apollo 16 crew's diet to prevent that. I was a little surprised to think that the doctors wouldn't realize that might loosen the astronaut's stool a bit, (laughs) which led to the fear of actually running out of fecal bags. Now, I don't know what they would have done if that had happened, but I can't imagine it being good. Duke mentioned that space grits were created for him. And being a southern boy myself, I can confirm that I have eaten my share of grits. In fact, I ate them today. Now, I prefer mine with bacon because they're just a little too gooey without bacon. And the bacon adds a lot to the taste. And I do use turkey bacon. Moving on, it was kind of concerning when Charlie couldn't get his suit zipped up. I don't know if they would have landed or not if Charlie couldn't get his suit on. They certainly couldn't have gotten outside and walked on the moon without Charlie's suit working. So I don't know what would have happened. It's it's funny how so many things have to come together to pull off a moon landing. And something as simple as a zipper could have ended it. Think about that. And finally, the personal secret project that only some of you will be interested in. (laughs) We had some very encouraging events occur since we last talked. If things continue to go well, I should be able to reveal the project next time. I know that you're excited. (laughs) Well, some of you want to know. Okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions and increases, and I would like to thank Charles G., who donated at the Starship level. Stefan S. from Germany donated at the Orion level and earned an alien emoji. Russ J. from North Carolina donated at the Orion level and earned a moon emoji. Matthew F. from Tennessee donated at the shuttle level and earned a satellite emoji. Stuart L. from Texas donated at the Apollo level and earned a satellite emoji. 
John Z. from Tennessee donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. Karsten E. from Denmark donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. And Martin G. increased his pledge on Patreon and is at the starship level with a satellite emoji. Our total Patreon donors are at 254. That, there was a shocking six Patreon drop from last time since we last, last spoke, which was a bit discouraging to lose six as the month changed from January to February. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 303, and our goal is 500 by the end of 2021. Now, here's Mr. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. (laughs) Boy, do we have some great prizes for the winner to choose from. A Space Rocket History Magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the rare but beautiful SRH Archive Magnet. But wait, there's more. You could have a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Charlotte Dadswell. That is Charlotte Dadswell. If you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, to tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we will get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 303 of you who have contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were The Stryker Brothers NASA, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz Moonwalker by Charlie Duke Forever Young by John Young Apollo 16 Flight Journal Apollo 16 Mission Report Apollo 16 Timeline The Internet Archive and Wikipedia And that is all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 359 posted by March 4th. Stay healthy everyone. And eat your grits with bacon or turkey bacon.